The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a slow peek into the way that I protocol diets. I believe that we overuse carbohydrates in a lot of people, and it's just really making us get a little too fat. What is happening, everyone? Welcome back to your favorite podcast, the Grodi Podcast. I'm Rosh Justin Haley, and today I'm going to talk about why low-carb diets work plus the history of them dating back to 18 freaking 63. I don't know about you guys, but I was not born yet. There is some awesome information inside. Have your notepads ready. This is a small, small peek into the way that I protocol my diet plans with my athletes. As always, leave us a five-star rating review, share us with your friends, tag me on Instagram. I would love to see your response to the podcast. I'll see you inside. At this point, you've all heard me talk about the importance of insulin and managing insulin levels throughout the day. Something that we know is if insulin is running high, then at that point, it's going to be very difficult. Um, one could argue it would be next to impossible for there to be oxidation liberation of fat. And so if we're in a chronically high insulin state, we're not going to get excessive fat loss. So you can't prep in this state. Um, it's very, very difficult to manage this state. And it's a very common question of people who um, have developed a type two diabetes and have then had it long term. Am I able to prep for a bodybuilding show? The answer is absolutely. Um, and we have some research that I'm actually going to go over today that would suggest that just by simply operating in a specific type of low carb diet, we can alleviate type two diabetes and the negative response of the beta cells that's occurring there. Today, I'm just going to cover the history of low-carb diets, how they come about, what happened, how do they work. The reality is, and we have extreme outliers on either end of the insulin response bell curve, if you will. In the middle is where, you know, about 85% of us are going to be, 80, 85% of us are going to be. On the outside, on the high end of insulin response, we're going to have 7.5% of the folks. On the low end, we're going to have another 75 what does this mean? This means that on the high end, the people who are um, on the far right side of the bell curve, they're going to have a good insulin response in terms of when their insulin is released from their body. There's just a genetic response that they have that allows it to get very low again once the job is done. There's the other side of folks on the left side of the bell curve that once insulin responds for them, it just simply takes longer in order to get back down into a baseline setting. And it's obviously going to be much more difficult to oxidize fat and to stay in an insulin positive situation if you're on the left side. Whereas on the right side, those are the people who can just pound food all day and not put on excess body fat. 
I know most of you listening to this podcast know my athlete, Emily Smith. She would be, um, you know, one of those people that's on the far right side um, of, of the spectrum here. So the notion that carbohydrates were a fattening nutrient, it dates back to 1863. There was this guy named William Banting, and he published um, what's been considered the first diet book. Um, it was called The Letter on Corpulence. And Banting, he was a London man who um, everything he was trying to do to lose weight had just failed. And so his doctor suggested remove all the sugars, remove all the starch from your diet. And this resulted in a 35 pound weight loss in Mr. Banting. And so of course he thought he had the secret. This is everything you all must do this. So he wrote a book to share what he learned with other folks and very enthusiastically, he he passed this book out to the public. It became, you know, very popular. And this is back in 1863. That was a long freaking time ago. I'm not a mathematician. I think that was about 100 and uh, what was that? About 170 years ago. So a very freaking long time. Now, the more recent low-carbohydrate diet books, such as the 1972 book published by a cardiologist, Robert Atkins, um, you're likely all familiar with the Atkins diet. Robert Atkins was very influential with that. He suggested this low-carb approach, but he took the idea a bit further by simply suggesting that carbs promoted fat gain because they stimulated too much of an insulin release. I think you guys know this, but I'm just going to go over it anyway, since... Um, some of you might be listening to the podcast for the first time. Insulin is a hormone secreted by beta cells in the pancreas. And this is mostly associated with the uptake of sugar uh, into as glucose into cells within our body. Aberrations of insulin activity result in diabetes. So when we have extreme issues with insulin, prolonged, that's what equates to diabetes. When we have type 1 diabetes, that's characterized by a complete destruction of the beta cells that produce insulin. And it's most likely because of the autoimmune reaction where the immune cells simply attack and destroy the beta cells that produce insulin. Why and how this happens remains somewhat of a mystery in medicine. We do have, um, from my understanding, we do have a pretty good grasp on managing and handling things in majority of type 1 diabetics. What is known is that type 1 diabetics have to be on insulin for their whole lives. In type 2 diabetics, the beta cells remain intact. The problem here is that the cells become so resistant to insulin that we essentially get signs of impeding diabetes, including insulin insensitivity, which is known as like pre-diabetes. Um, and so... And type 2 diabetics is something that type 1, you're born with it. Type 2, there's an onset throughout lifestyle issues that have caused the diabetes. But also in type 2, just because someone has type 2 di diabetes doesn't mean that they've like, you know, been lazy or they've been out of shape or, you know, they've whatever. They could just be on the negative end of that bell curve. And that's just the cards that, that you know, their genetic predisposition handed them. Those who don't ingest excess calories, excess carbohydrates, and also engage in regular activity can prevent and in many cases cure existing cases of diabetes, according to majority of recent research that we have regarding diabetes. 
Uh, diabetes is closely related to the number and size of lipocytes or fat cells. So the bigger your fat cells get, the less sensitive they are to insulin, right? So I've talked about this a ton of times on here. The more body fat you carry, the more excess body fat you carry, the less responsive you're going to be to insulin. This means this is putting you in a higher inflammatory state. This is putting you in a less responsive state for muscle cells. This is putting you in a negative digestion state, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, it's, it's, it's not setting you up for very much success, right? It's also going to cause dysfunctions in endocrine system from sex hormones to SHBG to thyroid as well. When you have, when, when you have like low body fat, like bodybuilding levels of body fat, your fat cells shrink and they're extremely sensitive to insulin. So one could say, if I have insulin resistance, I go through a dieting phase, I get really lean, then I'm able to start fresh with a blank canvas and be able to rebuild my insulin response from there. What is also true is once your body learns anything, that now makes the process learned much easier to undergo. So... If you got into a state where you had too much body fat and your numbers, your A1C numbers, um, which I discussed in the last podcast, your insulin numbers, your glucose readings, if they're all elevated and we go through a dieting phase and now they're all in check, you are going to need to operate with respect to that um, for a prolonged period of time, potentially the rest of your life. It's now going to be easier for you to get to that too fat of place or too um, resistant to insulin of a place yet again, just given the fact that you've already been there once, right? So once you clean it up, you 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 need. I've had this. Um, so before I did the Ohio, the Mister Ohio show in 2019, I was working with someone at the time who you know we pushed up to 300 freaking pounds on the scale. I, I did not have near enough muscle to be 300 pounds. It, it was fat. Like I was, I was, I was, I was fat. And, um, my blood glucose was constantly over a hundred. It was never under a hundred. Um, you know, at the time I didn't have the knowledge that I had now. Um, this is 2019. Um, and I know things didn't feel right. Like I wasn't sleeping right. The sleep apnea was real bad. The libido was completely tanked. Um, I wasn't getting pumps in the gym. My blood pressure was pretty high. I was super fatigued. I had very low desire or motivation. Um, I was in a really rough mental spot. Um, and I would say that, I mean, I definitely wasn't a great person at the time, but the extreme uh, um, resistance to insulin that I was experiencing at the time certainly wasn't helping my mental uh, capabilities function at a very high level. So then I went through the prep and on stage, I was like 234 pounds. Really, I should have been like, I should have been like 222 somewhere in there if I was like really in shape, probably about 220. So let's call it about 15. I was still 15 pounds out from being in shape. But man, I remember what it took to venture down into uh, into those depths, and it was really, really difficult. 
um, to take off all of that weight. I mean, I was down 70 pounds. Um, I'm real lucky I didn't have like saggy skin or anything from it. I was able to win the Mr. Ohio. Um, and you know, that was nice, but I knew immediately after that show that like, I needed a different route. <laughs> I needed to take a more healthful route. Um, and that's actually around the time uh, that Matt Jansen reached out to me. He offered me, you know, some words of advice. Um, and then I started working with him shortly thereafter, and we were able to kind of fix uh, some of those issues that we had. But from a bodybuilding perspective, insulin is extremely important. And this is something I want you guys to understand. If you're new to the podcast, if you've been here before, you've heard me talk about it a ton. I'm just simply educating on low carb diets and why they work. I'm not saying I'm a huge low carb advocate. I am saying that I think we should operate, um, you know, with with cognition about what our carbohydrates doing for us outside of our training session. What are they doing for us? Where do we need them? What do we need them for? If you can't answer those questions, then maybe we're ingesting a little too many carbohydrates. Um, personally, I'm a huge fruit guy. Um, I, my, my athletes are going to eat berries, raspberries, blueberries. I mean, how much research do you need to suggest that these are some of the best things on the planet? You don't even need research to suggest you just need to understand the, the actual berry itself, the actual fruit, the item itself to understand how beneficial, um, you know, those can be, but insulin is extremely important. Um, besides just faring glucose into the cells, Insulin does act as a storage hormone. So this means that it helps store both fat as triglycerides in fat cells. It stores carbohydrate as glycogen in the muscles and in the liver. But it also helps store amino acids as muscle inside of our muscle cells, right? So it's all very, very, very important. Um, it's anti-catabolic in its effects, so it helps to prevent excessive muscle breakdown and loss. So this is why intra-workout nutrition hit a huge craze. And then post-training, carbohydrate intake has a huge craze because obviously during training, we're actively breaking down our muscles and that's shooting cortisol up really high. And so we ingest carbohydrates um, you know, in that period to replenish and resupply what we are losing and what we're burning. And the goal is for us to be able to get more out of a training session with those intra-workout carbohydrates. I think intra-workout nutrition is for high caliber people. So like for me to put it in someone's protocol, I want them now that this is, this is kind of a new relevation to me as I'm starting to go against the grain of everyone else in terms of intra-workout nutrition. Now, I want you to really earn it from me with your training effort. You need to show me that you're going so hard in the gym that you have to have this. Um, I think there's more people doing intra-workout carbohydrates and things and who actually need it. I think amino acids intra-workout are absolutely phenomenal to utilize. I think salt during your training session is only going to help with your pumps and with your overall output that you experience. Obviously, creatine is very important, but intra-workout carbohydrates, I think they need to be earned given how hard we are training, all right? So how is insulin anti-catabolic? Again, understanding this is going to allow the later on conversation to be much easier understood. It has the opposing active effect of what cortisol does, which is the adrenal hormone that promotes muscle breakdown. Um, insulin has garnered this reputation of being this extremely potent anabolic hormone 
but really it's only anabolic when it's released in large amounts. If we just have small um, uh, releases of, of insulin, it's not super anabolic in nature, but it also has to be anabolic when it's accompanied by a pretty large amount of amino acids in the blood so that we're actively shifting there to be growth within the muscles that we have stored. We're, 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 we're shuttling those amino acids to that area that we have satellite cells from the immune system actively trying to recover and build back up after a training session. That is when insulin's anabolic. Insulin just like floating around in your bloodstream wouldn't necessarily be considered anabolic, at least in a positive way. It could be anabolic if you're taking in like high amounts of carbohydrates and fats without much fiber, without much protein. And it's going to be anabolic in nature in terms of shuttling the fat to triglycerides and storing it as fat and carbohydrates, hopefully into the liver. If not, if the liver is full, hopefully into muscle. But if the muscle's full and insulin's high and glycogen's just float, glucose is floating around our bloodstream, it's going to end up as body fat. From a dieting perspective, insulin is of extreme interest because like I said earlier, if the levels are high, fat's either being stored or being blocked from oxidization or a layman's term, just simply being burned. A central thesis of all the low carbohydrates diet is that when you lower the release of insulin through eating fewer carbohydrates, you open up a metabolic door that allows the increased oxidation of excess body fat. You can only burn body fat in a low insulin state. So how I explained this to my coaches earlier today, we're in a staff chat together. I said, if you have an athlete that sleeps eight hours a night, there's 16 hours in the day. If this athlete eats five meals in a day and each of them contain carbohydrates that in a bolus enough amount to elevate insulin, which is how a lot of bodybuilding diets are structured and set up. It's not how I do it unless you absolutely need it. You're on the outlier of the bell curve. If you have elevated insulin all day, you have five meals a day, and we understand that 90 minutes after a meal, the migrating motor complex is going to you know, clear out the intestines and make sure things are good to go there. It's just going to support digestion. About two hours after a meal, we're finally going to see insulin come back to a baseline metric. So we have five meals a day. That's 10 hours of elevated insulin if each of those meals contain enough carbohydrate to spike insulin. And this is simply, it's bio-individual to the, to the person. I'll have athletes send me postprandial blood glucose readings about 90 minutes after a meal. I don't like waiting a full two hours. I like seeing what's going on at 90 minutes because my goal at 90 minutes is to have 105 or under everywhere after all meals throughout the day. And so I know we have a, a, a good insulin, a decent insulin response. Ideal is going to be under 95. And really good, 90 minutes after a meal, we're back down to our baseline, which most of my athletes operate in that 78 to about 85 range of blood glucose. So if, we're, if we have elevated insulin for 10 hours a day, we're sleeping for eight hours a day, there's six hours a day that we're active that we don't have elevated insulin. 
That means for 10 hours a day, we have a hormone that there's a lot of people that don't like calling it a storage hormone. And like, it's not negative in connotation. That's just what insulin does. Insulin transports nutrients to places to be stored. That's, that's what it does. And we're going to have that elevated for 10 hours a day. Right? So it's like, ha- this should kind of ha- rethink the way you're dieting and what your strategy that you're taking is. If you're someone who might be a little too fat, if you're someone who's not this insulin hyper responder on the right side of the bell curve, I think that we should be utilizing carbohydrates for where we need them. Simply be. I'm a huge carbohydrate fan. I love carbohydrates, but I'm a much bigger fan of simply doing things in the most optimized manner for our health and our best progression. This is why calories in calories out only matters so much, right? It's only matters so much because Maybe you only ate 1,500 calories today, right? But let's say some of that was, you know, we were snacking throughout the day. We were consuming things throughout the day. There was never this time of the day where we were just like empty for like three or four hours, right? The 1,500 calories is like cool, fine, and well. That's a low number. You know, your baseline input might be 1,900, but if your insulin was elevated all day, like you're not extremely insulin responsive. So let's say you're starting a dieting phase. You're using macros. You're a female around like 20% body fat. You're not lean enough to have this extreme insulin response, right? So we need to take this into account with the way that we're dieting and how we have our diet set up. If we're eating 1,500 calories a day, let's say our carbohydrates are at, dude, I don't know, like 180 or something like that, right? And we're going to have... Um, five meals in the day. And so each meal is going to have, call it 35 carbohydrates, right? Um, if this is enough to elevate our insulin in between meals and keep it elevated, then calories in, calories out, the first law of thermodynamics suggests that we should lose weight if we're under what our metabolic set point would be. But there's so often that this doesn't happen just simply because the diet's not structured right. So we need to revisit. And maybe instead of having 35 carbs per meal, maybe we have 70 in the pre, we have 70 in the post, and then we have the next, I said 180, so the next 40 before we go to bed and a low GI carbohydrate to help us be able to get that final meal, get that final little insulin spike to drive those amino acids um, and to, you know, to, to allow us to not go to bed on this super empty or full stomach, just like kind of in the middle, right? But now if we have a bolus of those carbohydrates pre and post, your insulin response is still going to get back down in there under you know two hours, back down to a baseline metric in, in around two hours. So you're going to have two meals during the day that don't have any carbohydrates. Or you know you might have berries and some veggies, so you have like a trace amount of carbohydrates from that. And that's going to allow your systemic insulin levels to be lower throughout the day, and therefore you're going to oxidize more fat. It's very, very, very simple. I want you guys to understand, again, insulin's not bad. The relationship of which you could be using it can be bad, and that's the essence of this podcast. Let's talk about, like, when you first go low-carb or, like, when you go keto, right? Oh, my gosh, like, it's crazy. I went keto, and I lost 15 pounds in two weeks. What, what the fuck does that even mean? I mean, just listen to what the fuck you just said out loud, how stupid that is. 
15 pounds in two weeks. Where in the fuck is that a good idea? But we have people like saying this and doing this and then they pound the table for it without just fucking thinking, hey, you know what? There's no way I lost 15 pounds of fat in two weeks because that is not physiologically possible. You can use all the growth hormone. You can fast. You can use DMP. You can use T3. You can use clenbuterol. You can do all of the fasted cardio. And in two weeks, you're still not going to lose 15 pounds of body fat. These people switch to keto and they're like, oh my God, I lost 15 pounds of of fat in two weeks. No, you did not. What happened is you switched to a low carb diet. So your body's breaking down the existing glycogen stores in your muscle and your liver, and it's replacing the missing carbohydrates and the diet simply put, it's oxidizing these things. So each gram of glycogen is stored with 2.7 grams of water. You stopped feeding your glycogen stores. The glycogen got oxidized. When the glycogen gets oxidized to 2.7 grams of water that is there with each gram of glycogen is excreted and it leads to rapid weight loss. You didn't lose 15 pounds of fat. You very likely didn't even lose one. You just simply lost 15 pounds of glycogen that was being stored in your body and the water that was accompanying it. The first few weeks on a ketogenic, ketogenic diet, we constantly hear this. Oh, I tried keto and like I felt like trash. Or have you guys heard of the keto flu? Like the keto flu is like a super real thing. Why is this? It's because there's a lack of sufficient mineral intake, such as sodium and potassium, which is very, very common alongside a keto diet. If this clip gets posted on Instagram and you're super, yeah, keto, yeah, keto. Look, hey, I'm talking about low carb. I'm I'm talking about the the pros of what you stand up for, what you love. But the reality is y'all are lacking a lot of essential vitamins and minerals. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. All right. You know what? You probably know way more than me because you've worked with so many people, right? Why is this happening? It's because the water loss that's coming with the, the, the oxidation of the, gly- uh, of the glucose, the water loss is excreting the potassium and the sodium as well. So you're in a negative electrolyte balance. This makes you feel like trash. In addition to this, to get the full value of a low-carb diet, it means that you have to allow your body to accustom to that diet. This is essentially just a switch from primarily burning glucose to fat. Takes five to seven weeks. So whatever happened before that five-week point, that's five to seven weeks of perfect adherence. So whatever happened before that, you know, five, seven-week point, it wasn't, it wasn't fat that you were oxidizing. You might have burnt a little bit. But dude, your body was just getting rid of vitamins and minerals that you need, and it's getting rid of the glycogen that you've accumulated due to your poor dieting habits, and it's getting rid of the water that accompanies it. Most studies that have compared low-fat and low-carb diets or just low-calorie diets to low-carb diets find that the latter results in not only more rapid fat loss, but also a greater maintenance of lean mass or muscle. So the low-carb diet is superior in nearly every study, good study that's accepted by people, not that's funded by or run by people who are staunch advocates of one side or another. And the preservation of muscle is vital during any diet since the loss of muscle produced by dieting leads to lower resting metabolic rate. It guarantees the fact that once you stop that diet, you're very likely going to regain the lost body fat 
Yeah, those who critique the low-carb diets often avoid mentioning that fact of, hey, dude, you really need muscle. And there's very clear relevance of lean body mass, the amount of lean body mass an individual have, and how long and vital their lives are and how healthy their lives are. You know what I love? I love when I do these podcasts and people people will comment like, well, you're not a doctor. Where you publish? Hey, homie, I'm just, that's what, who do you think I learned from? I learned from the research. I learned from the doctors. This is what they're saying. I'm just able to put it in layman's terms. The fact of the matter is bodybuilders are so far ahead of this shit. Bodybuilders are so far ahead of this. Bodybuilders go low carb before they go low fat. Do you really think that if bodybuilders were losing more muscle from a low-carb diet than they were a low-fat diet, when a bodybuilder's entire essence is about how much muscle they can present in the leanest possible conditioning they can present it with on stage, don't you think they would have figured it out by now? And then that's when the people you know, bring in the steroids or the whatever. Like, Jesus, it just shows how... Whenever someone is such a firm believer in something and only one side, and this is why I say you're only an expert if you can equally argue the opposing side of what you believe in, these people just go to any means to make their situation sound superior than what everyone else is doing. One reason why lower carb diets are superior for fat loss is the type of diet uh, um, uh, interactions we have with environmental cues that promote fat gain. So let's give an example. That's like a high processed carbohydrate food, which they're ubiquitous in a lot of people's diets. They're going to be high glycemic index foods. This means they're going to promote the greatest release of insulin, which therefore will produce the most rapid fat gains in the body. They're, they're notable for their lack of dietary fiber, which explains the term process. But very commonly, these things are taken in with an abundance of fat as well. So we're having this high GI, this high glycemic index carbohydrate that is accompanied by fat, no fiber, no protein. We're going to spike insulin. We just fed our, our, ourselves fat and carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates are going to go wherever they're going to be shuttled. If the liver doesn't have room, you better hope that the muscle has room because if the liver and the muscle both don't have room, now we're going to hit a double whammy right into the triglycerides and it's going to be stored as fat. If you don't believe that, then explain to me where they go. Because <laughs> if you're in a high insulin state, you're not oxidizing, <laughs> you're storing. And people just overlook this. People overlook this. They think that these processed foods aren't causing these issues. And you know what their response is? It's always, well, look at China. We're going to get to China culture in just a minute because they're having a big obesity problem right now. The natural fiber content of carbohydrate foods, such as those found in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, shows the entry of glucose into the blood, which in turn reduces the extent of the insulin release because you're consuming these Processed carbs explains why the incidence of obesity has increased so much in the last 40 years, despite the popularity of low-fat diets, despite this huge push of low cholesterol, low-fat, low. Why aren't things getting better? Why are we still getting more and more and more unhealthy? We have to have the natural fiber content of the foods. If it's being stripped and they're being processed, if it's a processed food, it's not a healthful food. No, your protein bars aren't healthy. (laughs) 
sometimes it makes me facepalm at the things that people do. Processed foods means that it was taken far away from the origin of how it was meant to be consumed. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I don't have ice cream. I'm saying I know my insulin's response to it is really freaking good. And you can you can build up into that too, you see? People will place limitations on it. And like, well, healthy dieting means I can't have any of this stuff. No, you absolutely can, but you have to get a grasp on the lifestyle factors first and foremost. If you have systemically high insulin all day, and then at night, you just ingest ice cream, like a thousand calories of Ben and Jerry's per se. What the fuck do you think is going to, what, where is it going to go? It's going to be stored as fat because these people who have chronically high insulin, they're storing everything they're taking in. Their liver's full, their muscles full. They don't have more room at the end, at the end, not the end, sorry, at the end for carbohydrates to be stored anywhere. Higher protein intake is very often associated with a low-carb diet, and this is a very established way to help preserve lean mass like we talked about. Preserving muscle mass when dieting should be more at the forefront of people's minds versus weight loss. Weight loss doesn't equate to you being healthier unless you're like really, really, you know, really overweight. Muscle mass has been proven, the research, that the higher your lean body mass is, of course, to an extent, like if it was just as high as it could possibly be, then bodybuilders would live forever, right? The higher your lean body mass, the longer, more vital you're going to live. In one study of women who have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, all of us are aware of this. I've worked with dozens and dozens of people with this. The women were provided with a low glycemic index diet or a low fat diet for eight weeks. The results of the study showed that the women who consumed a low glycemic index diet lost significantly more body fat compared to those who consumed a low fat diet. In addition, the women who consumed a low GI diet show greater losses of fat in the visceral area, the abdominal, the subcutaneous, and the intramuscular areas. In short, they lost fat everywhere. The women who followed the low-fat diet lost more muscle than they did fat. An important note about this study, the calories were equated. If you are reading a study and the calories are not equated, then that is just not a study that is worth anything whatsoever. Yet the women preserve muscle mass and lost fat through their bodies more with a low-carb diet. Let's talk about what's going on in China right now because it's been so common that people are like, well, in, in you know Chinese culture, they eat so many more high GI carbs because of like white rice than what we eat in America. This is true. But right now, we have this technological advancement and movement going on in China that is forcing the level of physical activity to decline so significantly that the rates of obesity are increasing, as well as the diabetes related to obesity is increasing at a rate that is actually soon to surpass America in terms of, not in terms of total number, like the value, but in terms of how quickly they're getting there. 
One physiological fact is that carbs are only converted into body fat when glycogen levels in the liver and the muscle are full. Under that circumstance, ingesting excess carbohydrates leave them with no place to go. When you are highly physically active, your glycogen levels are usually not completely filled, which makes fat deposition from carbohydrate ingestion very unlikely. This is why for years and years and years with the Chinese, their extremely high intake of carbohydrates such as rice, they weren't getting fat. Now they are. If you move a lot and you train and you eat wholesome foods, it is very unlikely that you're going to have insulin issues. You could venture it's next to impossible. But you always want to leave a gray area for things. Other factors come into play that might not be directly related to insulin activity, but let's run through some things real quick. The balance between leptin, which is a fat cell produced protein, and it sends a signal to the brain to lower appetite, and ghrelin, which is a gut-based protein that works in the opposite manner, which greatly stimulates appetite. The balance between those two things are not directly related to insulin activity, but they are directly related to your relationship with insulin, meaning if you're chronically high insulin, then you're likely going to have chronically high ghrelin as well. Some new research suggests that the balance of bacteria existing in your colon or the intestinal microbiome, which I've talked about a ton here, does influence carbohydrate, fat, and protein absorption, as well as appetite and obesity, which is another reason why a high-protein intake is going to be so important because protein feeds the good bacteria. And when we have fat-promoting bacteria, those need to be fed by excess sugar intake, and that promotes the bad bacteria to grow and to further expand their reach within our gut. So if you have a high simple sugar intake, you're going to have a negative balance of bacteria in the microbiome, and you're very likely going to have an offset of the microbiome, bad bacteria versus good bacteria, which directly relates to nutrient partitioning, which directly relates to neurotransmission creation, which directly relates to your central nervous system being able to communicate with your gut and your peripheral nervous system. It directly relates to your ability for beta cells to be able to produce insulin in a healthy manner. It directly relates to your ability for your body's cells neurally um, uh, in your freaking prostate, in your liver, in your muscles, all of the cells in the body to be able to process insulin as they need to. Not getting enough sleep for even just one night can make someone insulin resistant and more sensitive to carbohydrate intake. Lack of sleep also reduces leptin, which is what downregulates hunger, while boosting ghrelin, which is what makes you hungrier. Obviously, this results in greater appetite and more chance of overeating. So, how should someone operate if they tend to secrete too much insulin? I have some recommendations to finish this podcast off for you guys. Reduce or eliminate processed and refined carbohydrates. This is where the greatest response of insulin is. This means eliminating like the refined grains. We shouldn't, we don't really, if you're having insulin issues, we shouldn't take sugar in. If you don't have insulin issues, sugar is perfectly fine to take in. But you have to have the lifestyle in order first, right? 
Try to consume foods with a low GI rating. You can easily find a glycemic index anywhere, with the exception of right after training. Um, after training, you want to consume, in my opinion, a high GI carb for a much faster muscle glycogen synthesis, which I believe is very important to our recovery process. Also allows us to get amino acids into the muscle right away. The carbohydrates you consume should be natural or they should contain some sort of natural fiber content. Fiber delays the entry of glucose from the carbs into the bloodstream and therefore lowers insulin response. The fiber also feeds the intestinal microbiome, which aids body fat loss and nutrient partitioning, as I just covered. Legumes, fruits, vegetables. If you struggle um, digesting legumes or vegetables, make them well done. Cut down the lectins in them or cook out the lectins in them to make them you know, more well done in nature. I personally cook all my veggies well done. Just I uh, kind of like them that way, to be honest with you. If you eat fruit, minimize the intake of the high sugar fruits like bananas. If you want to have a banana pre or post training is a phenomenal place for it to be. But instead, I want to focus on berries, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries. They don't promote as much insulin response. And we actually have a study that was posted very recently in the Obesity Journal that found that adding red raspberries to a meal greatly reduced the release of insulin after the meal, very likely due to the fiber content. Um, and you could even argue the antioxidant content that these berries comes with. If you do consume a rapidly absorbed carb, adding some protein or fiber to it will significantly slow the uptake of the carb into the body and thus lower the insulin response to the carb. Let's say you want to go to bed. And you just really love rice. Like you are not going to sleep unless you are satiated with white rice. Great. This is awesome. We're going to have a meal with white rice. We're going to have a meal with more berries than the content of rice. So if we have 200 grams of rice, let's have about 250 grams of berries. And we're going to have a lean protein source like a chicken tenderloin, like a white fish, a shrimp, a scallop squid, any of those things, or even just a whey protein shake if you don't want too much stomach volume to go along with the berries and the rice. That would be extremely beneficial for you. I really hope this podcast was enlightening because this is a slow peek into the way that I protocol diets. I believe that we overuse carbohydrates in a lot of people, and it's just really helped making us get a little too fat or become less insulin responsive. So answer the question for yourself. What do I need carbohydrates for within my day-to-day -day operations? And then place them as needed throughout the day for your best output in the gym and your best progress as a bodybuilder, but also for your best progression and your overall health. As always, leave us a five-star rating review. Share us with your friends. I'll see you next time.